Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise today. Because it's only you that's seated on the throne, no one else. You're the one who gave up that position, Lord Jesus, and came down here to earth. You humbled yourself. You gave up everything to become like us, to be born in that Bethlehem stable all those years ago, to live, to minister through that humiliation, through that breaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? of yourself to the very depths your father exalted you to the right hand and so you sit on the throne and it's to you that we sing and give you the glory and the honor Lord we thank you for forgiving us for the times where we don't give you the glory that is due your name We thank you that you clean us and you restore us and you bring us back into that relationship with you. And Lord, if there's anything within us right now that, that is messing up that relationship, remove it from us. Restore us again. Lord, we give you the honor, the glory. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for your touch upon our lives. And Lord, as we look into your word now, speak to us, we pray. Your Holy Spirit has promised to reveal your truth to us. And that's all we want to see. That's all we want to hear inside of us. And Lord, speak to the young people as they go for Sunday streams. Reveal your truth to them plant those seeds deep in their lives today in all of us that it may bear fruit for your glory Lord we give you glory we give you honor because you're the one seated at the right hand we thank you and we praise you in the name of Christ Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. Shepherds come and gone. Wise men have come and gone. Herod, realizing that he's been tricked, kills all the babies. All those two years and under in Bethlehem. But before then, God has appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Leave, go into Egypt because Herod's going to try and kill the boy. In verse 19, it said, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee 
and went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. You know, when you read the pages of Scripture, you always need to ask yourself one question straight away. Why is this written? Why did God evoke within Matthew these words to write down? He could have just done all of this in a a verse. He could have actually just ignored it completely and gone from the end of uh, verse verse 18, tried to kill, but we know that he was in Egypt. And he could have gone on to chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching, and then Jesus arrives. Having returned from Egypt, Jesus went out. Why, Why did he put all this in? Why is it there? You see, all Scripture, it says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, training, rebuking. Everything that God wants us to know. So it means that every Scripture there is a reason why it's there. And our role, if you like, is to, is to understand. Because many times I've read this passage of Scripture and I've just gone, uh-huh, well, that's a bit of interesting history. Okay, he went, and then dream, comes back again, goes up to Galilee. So what? Why is it there? People love making fun of one another, don't they? Nationalities make fun of one another. Who do the Jamaicans make fun of? Don't say nobody, because it's not true. In Jamaica, who who are the jokes made fun of? Okay, the Americans make fun of the Canadians and the Mexicans. The Canadians, they make fun of themselves. They make fun of the Newfies, those from Newfoundland. There was a Canadian and a Newfie, right? And you know the Newfies kind of, right? Who do the Jamaicans make fun of? Small islanders. Everybody else, basically. That's really what you're trying to say. Okay. What about from Honduras? Who do they make fun of? Guatemalans and Costa Ricans. Sri Lankans make fun of? Indians. Indians make fun of Sri Lankans. Thank you. Now we're getting there. I I looked it up. The Spanish, they make fun of Portuguese. And the Portuguese make fun of the Spanish. It's kind of a love-hate relationship between the two. The French and the Dutch make fun of the Belgians. Should never make fun of the Belgians because the iced Belgian bun is the best. Anyway, the Norwegians, the Finnish, and the Denmark have all ganged up on the, the Swedes. The Germans make fun of the Polish. The Swiss make fun of the Austrians. The Austrians make fun of the Germans, so they've got a nice little thing going with them. And the English make fun of the Irish. No, the English just don't like the French. They make fun of the Irish. There's a difference. An Englishman and an Irishman went into a bakery The Englishman went up to the counter and when the person behind the counter wasn't looking, took three biscuits and stuck it in his pocket. Turned to the Irishman and said, you see how clever I am? I'm English. I'm clever. You can never beat that. And the Irishman said to the Englishman, watch this. An Irishman is always cleverer 
than an Englishman. He went up to the baker behind the counter and said, if you give me a biscuit, I'll show you a magic trick. And so they, well, okay, they're cheap biscuits. So he gave him a biscuit and the Irishman promptly ate the biscuit. He said, well, what's that? He said, well, give me a second biscuit. I'll show you the magic trick. So he gave him another biscuit. The Irishman looked at the biscuit like this and then went like this and put it in his mouth and ate it. He said, where's my magic trick? He said, give me the third biscuit. So he gave him three bis- third biscuit. He ate that one too. And by this time, the baker was really irate and said, you promised me a magic trick. He said, look in the Englishman's pocket and you'll find your biscuits. Great joke because it works with small islanders as well. You can use that anywhere you like. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was the place that the Jews all made fun of. There was a Jew and a Nazarene went into the bakery. It's like the English and the Irish. Now, we know that because in the Bible, it makes fun of people from Nazareth. Nazareth was a no place. It was just up there, north of Watford somewhere, right? Who knows where? Nothing ever good came out of Nazareth. The Bible says that. Look in John 1. I think we got it on the screen. Can we have the next screen? Oh, no, not that one. Oh, there you go. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? This is when... Nathaniel and Philip are being called. And when Nathaniel is, uh, and Philip are being called, Philip goes to Nathaniel, his brother, and says, hey, I found the Messiah. Come and, come and meet him. And Nathaniel go, Messiah from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what they thought about Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth except jokes. That was it. In John 7, I haven't got that on the screen, but let me read it to you. John 7, verse uh, 52, it says this. This is the Jewish leaders. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our Lord condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And this is what the Jewish leaders replied. They said, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. There's no such thing as a prophet from Galilee. That's like saying somebody famous came from Wealdstone. Right? It doesn't happen. Harrow, yes, Wealdstone. The hill, for sure. Lord Byron was up there. We all know that. But Wealdstone, you know, like, and that's the same kind of attitude. Now, they've conveniently forgotten that Jonah actually came from Galilee. He was uh, born five miles away from Nazareth. But nothing good, that was their attitude. Nothing good can come from this place. It's a rural place. It's a place that's kind of behind the times. I said at the the, uh, first service, you know, we get so used to to London, don't we? When you go outside London, you can't get a Wi-Fi signal to save your life, can you? You know, I go down to my parents, they're in Southampton. Nice little village outside Southampton. Nice place. 
You have to kind of lean out the upstairs window. In a bungalow, that's not even possible. But you have to kind of hold your phone up like this and jump up and down just to get a signal. I'm like, what is this place? You know, like, it's got a waitrose but no Wi-Fi. What is that? Because here, everywhere you go, we get upset when we go on the tube and it goes underground. And oh, I've lost my signal. You know, and... and uh, it's kind of like there, you kind of go like, oh man, it's so behind the times. And that was their attitude of Galilee. It was that rural, you could tell people from Galilee by their accent. You know the kind of countryside accent? Small island accent. It's not the proper Jamaican accent, it's one of these others from the smaller islands that don't really cut it, you know? One big wave and they'll be gone. Washed away. That's the kind of thing. I assume the Ghanaians make fun of the Nigerians and Nigerians are Ghanaians. Is that true? Yeah, okay, good. Just checking. That was just a shot in the dark, but you know, okay. Just want to establish that. That's why the Nigerians are sitting on this side and the Ghanaians are over on this side, right. Oh, I see a Nigerian moving over. Awesome. I've completely lost where I am now. Like, anyway. <laughs> but you see, now there are, it was one of those tiny little, nobody came from, nothing significant happened there. And not only that, a lot of the Romans went and lived up in Galilee. And so up in Galilee, there was this kind of, to get along, there was this feeling that, you know, like the, the, the people of Israel and the Roman invaders are kind of meshed together a little bit in Galilee. And so like they put up with them because there was loads of Romans there. They just had to get along with one another. And therefore, you know, in Galilee, they're not real. They're not real Israelites like us from Jerusalem. They're not pure. They're not, they're not hating the Romans like we're supposed to hate the Romans. They're kind of getting along. And so they look down on people from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Nothing. And it says it over and over again. And so when Jesus was crucified and hung on the cross, what did Pilate write above him? Do you remember? King of the Jews, but what else? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders went crazy, didn't they? Don't write that. How can you have Nazareth and the king of the Jews in the same sentence? That doesn't even make sense. It's like saying, here he is, some, some rural upstart from up north somewhere. And you're calling him the king of the Jews? That, that's just an affront. And Pilate, or Herod, thought himself really clever by saying that. He did that just to wind them up. I'll be sarcastic. And he said, what is written will stay written. And so Pilate is, or Herod is just laughing to himself. And all the Jews are like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. What an imba- How could this be? And so why, why, going back to our Matthew reading, why did Matthew hear Put it in. Because you see, Matthew, more than anybody else, goes to such great lengths to show who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 1. 
How many people have studied this chapter in great depth? The genealogy of Jesus. Isn't it a winner? You know, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And so it carries on list after list after list. Matthew starts off by saying, you know who Jesus is? He is from the line of David. He was born in David's town in Bethlehem. That's where David comes from. He was, that's where David was crowned king. And so Matthew spends all his time saying, hey, you know the line of David? You know the king? And the promises to David that your kingdom will never end? This is Jesus. He's from the same lineage because he was born in the same place. And not only that, he then goes on in later in chapter 1 that he says, and he's going to be called what name? Do you remember? Don't look at the screen. That's not going to help you. Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So he's not only the king of the Jews. He's not only from David's line, but he's also God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew goes to these great lengths to do this. And then he ruins the whole thing by saying, oh, by the way, he's also from a town called Nazareth, called a Nazarene. And they must be going, like, what is this? Why ruin it? You've just raised him up there to be, this is the Messiah, the Savior that the Jews are all waiting for. And then you've just crushed it in one go. Why? Why is it there? Well, firstly, it's there because if you look at verse 20, if we can skip back up to uh, the first page. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, if you go on to the next couple of screens, there you go. This is from Exodus. This is after Moses has escaped into Midian. And he's there, burning bush, all that jazz, gets married. And God says to him, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. In the Hebrew and the Greek, it's almost identical. Why? Why? Because Matthew here is trying to tie the two together. He's saying, you know what, Jesus? Jesus and Moses are tied together. It mirrors one another. Just because he's saying here, just as the death of Pharaoh freed Moses to go back into Egypt. And what did he do in Egypt? Well, he began the process of leading his people out towards the promised land. So, what is Jesus going to do when he goes back to Israel? He's beginning again the process of leading the people out to the promised land. And where's the promised land? It's the new covenant inside you and inside me. It's a new covenant that are right in their hearts. It's not just the physical land that the people of Israel went to, but the spiritual land that is inside of you and me. And so here he's tying the two together, saying, You know, just as Moses did it physically, so Jesus is going back and doing it spiritually inside each one of us. It's the fulfillment of the salvation history for the people of Israel. 
Just think about all the similarities. Israel had gone down into Egypt during Joseph's time. Why? Because there was a massive famine. They're all dying out. Jesus goes into Egypt. Why? Because they're trying to kill him. Both are escaping to Egypt to escape death. Israel is called to leave Egypt through Moses. Jesus is called out of Egypt back again. Israel wandered how many years in the wilderness? 40 years. How many, if you look in Matthew, guess what comes up right next after John the Baptist? You get the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. How long was he in the wilderness? 40 days. You see the comparisons. So Matthew is saying to us, he's trying to get it into our heads, into our minds, that he's tying Israel and Moses together with Jesus and the Messiah. Now the thing is, and this is why it's important, is that the Jews thought that the Messiah was for who? For themselves. That the Messiah was going to come, it's a Jewish Messiah because it's a Jewish faith. So it's for them. The Messiah is going to come, rescue them. The Messiah is going to come and reestablish their kingdom, reestablish the land. It's going to be another David. Another Solomon, he's going to come and be a king or a judge and he's going to free them from the tyranny of the Romans, set up the the kingdom as it's meant to be. Just for them, no one else. But Jesus saying, "Uh -uh, I'm not just for Jerusalem, I'm from Nazareth as well. I'm not going to just come and set up my kingdom down there. Just for you, it's going to be a kingdom for everyone. You see, Jesus is also from Nazareth. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. I think I might have that on the screen. There you go. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. In some translations, it has Galilee of the Gentiles. In some of the NIV, by the way of the sea. See, Isaiah sees it. It's so far north. It's so out there. that That's where all the Gentiles are living. And then this goes on. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The same passage that we we say at Christmas. So he's saying there, you see, that God is coming for the Gentile as well as for the Jew. And by Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but growing up in Nazareth, he's making a statement that says, you know what? This son of God, this Messiah is for everyone. He is the one who will fulfill the Old Old Testament promises, the covenant. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, 12, the, the promises to Abraham, or Abraham as he was then. I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. And so Jesus needed to be raised in Nazareth to make that statement to you and to me that, hey, the Messiah is for everyone, not just for the Jews. All people are blessed through Jesus. But there's a second reason that it's in here. 
And I think this is perhaps even more, well, maybe just as important. You see, as I've said before, people from Nazareth were looked down upon. Oh, he's from there, Nazareth. Nothing good comes from there. No profit from there. Nothing ever happens in Nazareth. Oh, he's one of them. You can tell by the way he talks and the way he walks. He's from Nazareth. And God wanted, chose his chosen one to be associated with the people who are looked down on by others. Those who feel inadequate. Let me ask you, in your quietest moments, you know those moments of reflection where the TV's off and everything's off? You're lying in bed just before you doze off to sleep. In those quietest moments, do you feel incapable and out of your depth and inadequate? How often have you said those words of Nathaniel? Actually, can anything good come out of me? Can it? How often do you feel like you're, you're sinking in the ocean? Everything is around you and you're just wrestling to keep things going, but you know you're losing the battle. Lord, I can't manage. You know, everybody struggles with feelings of insecurity, everyone. It's part of the brokenness that sin does in us. And I think generally we hide it in one of two ways. One is pride and the other is jealousy. Pride, what we do is we tend to pump ourselves up. We feel inadequate. We feel like we can't handle things. We feel like we can't cope. But what we do is we put a facade out there to everybody else that says, hey, look at me, I'm okay. You wanna, let me show you all my credentials. Let me show you all the degrees I have after my name. You know, the board out there is not really big enough to hold everything on it that I've, I've managed to accumulate over the time, you know? And, and when you come into the office, you see all my, all my diplomas and all my things are up on the wall there. That's pride. When you talk to someone with pride, you can always tell because they're always name dropping. Oh, you know, like, oh, this is going to be bigger and better than last year. This is going to be so much better. Oh, you know, when I was with so-and-so, when I accomplished this, when I did that, and really what they're doing is they're hiding the insecurity inside with a facade on the outside. They're still insecure underneath it all. When you unwrap them, when you see below the, beneath the surface, they just build this facade. They put on the clothes, but inside there's still the turmoil. The other is jealousy. That's where I'm never good enough. That's where I beat myself up and I just say, you know what? I am never going to be like that. I'm never going to be good enough. And I look at everybody else and I say, Lord, why, why are they so good? Why did you give them all the gifting? Why can't I do it like them? Why am I like this? I can't do these things. I can't. I'm never going to be able to. 
and we just beat ourselves up and we convince ourselves that we never can be and we pull ourselves down. You know, each one of us has that recording in our minds, doesn't it? I remember one time after services, you know, you come out and you have a cup of coffee with people after service. And so often people kind of go, oh, thank you for that this morning. That was really great. But sometimes you get those negatives, don't you? Remember one time I was walking up that aisle. I was about where John was sitting. It wasn't John. But it was about where he was sitting. There's somebody sitting there. And he just looked up at me. One of the leaders of the church, actually, said, I'll give you a C for that this morning. Grade C. I said, I beg your pardon? They said, oh, sorry. I said, I should think you should be. Grade C. Now, that's wrong on so many levels that won't even go into. Don't know what the guy thought he was doing coming to church, grading a service when he should be offering himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he was an F for fail for actually worshipping at all that morning. But anyway. But you know what? That was about 15 years ago, and I still remember it. I couldn't tell you one single positive thing that anybody said to me that morning. I'm sure there were many. But I remember that one negative. I remember where they sat. I remember what they looked like. I remember who it is. I remember their face. Because underneath the facade, each of us, it strikes a chord, doesn't it? That says, maybe I am a grade C. I want to be an A, but maybe I'm a C. And do I really want to live as being a C? Nazareth was a great E. And out of all the places in the world that God chose his son to be raised, he chose Nazareth. He could have chosen anywhere, but he chose Nazareth. Why? Because he wants you and me to know that he understands. You know, I think that was doubly important for Matthew. Who was Matthew? He was a tax collector, wasn't he? Tax collectors are not liked people. There's two professions I've usually found when you go to parties. And they say, oh, what do you do for a living? If they say, I work for the Inland Revenue, you quickly walk the other way and you go get yourself a drink, don't you? Oh, really? Nice to meet you. I'm off. The other profession is being a priest. Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a priest. Then they start looking at their alcoholic drink in front of them. They start feeling guilty because they haven't been to church for six months or a year or ten years. They start thinking, is this the moment I should confess or not confess? They They just don't know what to say. And they make an excuse and they walk off. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were even worse in those days because to be a tax collector, you had to be, you were collecting taxes from all you lovely people. I was a tax collector, okay? I would go around and I would collect all the money off you people and then I would give it to your worst enemy, the Romans. 
That was my job. And I'm one of you. I'm a Jew like you're all Jews, right? We're all Jews together here. And the way I would get the job of being tax collector is that it was done on a bidding system. I would have, com- I would have promised more money to Rome than any other of the tax collectors in the area, which means I'm going to fleece you for more money than anybody else. And if you don't pay up, I've got the whole of the Roman army at my disposal to come and make sure you pay. Now, how popular do you think tax collectors truly are? A tax collector from Nazareth? He was an outcast amongst the outcasts. And yet, for him, Jesus being born in Nazareth is so important. Because he's saying, Jesus came to someone like me. Jesus was willing to be born, grow up in a place, be called an outcast along with me. Even call me into his merry band of outcasts as well. Jesus is willing to go that far. Jesus accepts those who feel that way. Just look at the Christmas story. Who comes? Shepherds, they're outcasts. They're not even allowed to go worship. The shepherd walked up to the door. We'd say, no, thank you. You can't come in here. You're unclean. You can't come in and worship with us. We're the clean ones. You're not. Go away. Go back to your shepherding business. Not only that, they were so mistrusted that shepherds were considered Liars, so that they couldn't give testimony in a court of law because you couldn't trust their word. And if you had to misplace something in, in your house and you lost your keys, it's probably the shepherds that had nicked it. That's what was happened. That was their opinion of shepherds. And yet God said, you know what? Let me invite the shepherds to come and worship. They can see baby Jesus. Wise men. Well, I'm not going to call them wise men anymore because they're rubbish at being wise. But the Magi from the east... They're foreigners. They're not even Jews. Gentiles, probably a different religion altogether, certainly not Jewish, come. They're the ones that see the, see the sign and come worship. Where are the leaders of Israel? Where are the people of Israel? Where are the good people to come and worship? Nowhere. God invites the outcasts. God invites those who are beaten up and feel low to come and worship him. Why? Because God understands. He said, my son will grow up and be called a Nazarene. You see, God loves to choose the outcast. Loves to choose those who don't think they can handle it. Loves to choose the people who think they have nothing to offer. And he pours his spirit in and through them and transforms them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's an amazing passage. I was just reading it the other day. It struck me so much. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says this. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than man's strength. 
Brothers, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Listen to this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. He's saying there that God has chosen the lowly things, the Nazarite things, the things from Nazareth. Those are the things that God chooses. Why? Well, partly because he loves. He loves us. He wants the best for us. But partly because he loves. Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know what? Put it onto the last screen for a minute, please. Philip's response, I love this. He says, come and see. Nathaniel says, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? Philip says, go see. You may be saying to yourself, can anything really good come out of me this year? I'm, I'm like a Nazarite. I'm like one of those people, I don't think of myself very highly. I don't think of anything. I'm one of those people that struggle and can anything really come out of me? You know what God says to you today? He says, come see. When we give ourselves into the hands of God, when we say, Lord, just take me, And use me as I am. Just flow through me. He comes in and he transforms us. And leads us on that journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He takes us from a no place and nothing. Just me. And he floods us with his spirit and he pours himself into us. So that he says... To everyone else, come and see my son or come and see my daughter. Come and see the transformation that I have done within them. Come and see how different they are. Come and see the power of God flowing through them. Come and see their dedication to God. We sang it, didn't we? We give you glory. We give you honor. Come and see, God says, to you and to me. Because that is the business of God. That is why Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Because he wants to say to you and to me, everything is possible. Everything is not just possible, but can happen in your life. Regardless of how weak you think you are, God chooses you to shame the strong. Regardless of how How poor you think you are, God can make you rich. Regardless of what you think of yourself, God can transform you and make you significant for him and for his glory. He wants to lift you up. He wants you to become 
more than you are this year. Not for your glory, not so that you can boast, but so that God can boast in you of what he has accomplished. You know, in the book of Acts, one of the favorite statements they have is Jesus of Nazareth. You know, that word that was a derision on the cross, that was supposed to be there to shame the whole of Israel, the apostles used it over and over and over again. On Pentecost, Peter stood up and he said, Jesus of Nazareth is the one. Why? Because he's saying Jesus who can be, who's like you is the one who brought salvation. When there was that beggar lying by the gate who was crippled, what did Peter say? In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. All the way through the Acts of the Apostles, you'll see them using the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Because in that lowliness of Christ is the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Can we sing that song again? The second one. And as we do so, I want to invite you today at the start of this year. What are you feeling like today? What's going through your mind? Do you feel of yourself as a Nazarite? Lord, who am I that you're going to use me this year? What do I have to offer? Bring that to Jesus this morning. Because the Lord says, you know what? I became like you. So you can become like him. As we sing it, just stay seated. And we'll sing it together. Transform me that I may become like. 